Well, good morning, church. No, I have missed saying that the last two Sundays. Good to get away, but it, honestly, it good, it's good to be back with you and worshiping with you this morning. And as we open up God's Word together, I do want to say happy Mom's Day to all you mothers out there. I know that um, this can be a tough day for some people. I'm trying to be sensitive to that. It really can be for various reasons that I'm not going to get into, but you may be one of those individuals. This is a really tough day for you. And, uh, and I prayed for you this morning, if not by name, but just for those that this is going to be tough. And I, and I, and I lifted you up. But I don't, in doing that and being sensitive to that, I don't want to miss the opportunity as well to say, Happy Mom's Day, you moms. You've invested a lot and uh, we have a gift for you on the way out, a plant. Make sure you uh, take that. And you have uh, two choices. You know, you are, you're not who, you, let me try this again. You are not you. I should know this. I've seen this enough. You are not you when you're hungry. You are not you when you're hungry. Well, that went to another level when hungry customers at a local buffet in Alabama got into a fight. What, were they, what was the fight over? Crab legs. Crab legs. The unexpected brawl went down at Meteor Buffet in Huntsville as diners were waiting to feast on a freshly boiled batch of crab legs. Customers had been waiting in the buffet line for a good 10 to 20 minutes when the crab legs finally came out. And that's when things got really nasty. People were yelling, hey, she cut in line. I was here first. Hey, he's taking more than his fair share. And, and people were actually using service tongs as weapons. Sounded like a fencing match. Plates were shattering everywhere. One young woman literally was beating an older man. Following the fight, police arrested John Chapman and Shakita Jenkins, who was at the buffet with her kids. Good parenting modeling going on right there. And Chapman sustained a cut on his head while Jenkins was uninjured. But both Chapman and Jenkins admitted to letting their temper cloud their judgment all because they were hungry. A word was actually added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 2018 to describe one who is bad-tempered or irritable as a result of hunger. It's the word hangry, H-A-N-G-R-Y. It's hunger combined with anger. Okay. The fighting over crab legs. I mean, how petty and ridiculous. And I'm sure glad I'm not like that. At least the things I fight over are weightier matters of importance. Isn't it amazing and even sometimes silly the things we're willing to fight about? You probably heard about them even in church fights, what we're willing to fight about, the color of a carpet or a true, true story. There was a division in the church over someone using Cool Whip instead of real, uh, real cream for a gelatin salad at a potluck. Come on now, I'm not a big fan of Cool Whip either, but really? Really? I would suggest to you there's one thing worth fighting for, and that's Unity. Unity. Well, we turn our attention this morning to a church riddled with problems. The church in Corinth, Paul addresses immorality 
He addresses abuses of spiritual gifts, uh, wrongful lawsuits, disorderly conduct around communion, and matters of Christian freedom. But the one issue he speaks to at the very beginning is a division in the church. At the top of the list is Paul's concern for unity. And so if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's after the Gospels and then Acts and Romans, and then there it is, you'll find 1 Corinthians. I invite you to follow along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we begin a new sermon series on the church. Now, in one sense, it really is a continuation of the True North sermon series as we look at what we believe about the church as stated in Evangelical Free Church Article of Faith. Well, here's the statement. It will be on your screen. EFC's Article of Faith on the church says this. We believe that the true church comprises of all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. It goes on. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances. One we're going to remember today. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Now, in our previous sermon series on what we believe, the true north, I intentionally skipped over this statement on the church in order to give more attention to it and tie it into our vision as a church and our paradigm for ministry. And I've chosen the book of 1 Corinthians as our book study, though just kind of a heads up here not be working through it in, in its entirety, verse by verse, but rather passages, eight passages I have selected for our purposes. And so I'm wrapping the next eight weeks around the theme of church awakening. Church awakening. Now, if you're on our mailing list and you took a few minutes to read through the epistle this past week, as well as a couple of weeks ago, you'd have heard my, my heart a little around the need for a church awakening. Why church awakening? Because like the proverbial frog in the kettle, we have slowly over time become accustomed to the rise of worldly thinking that has crept into our lives. Without even realizing it was happening, many local churches today have replaced biblical teaching and repackaged the gospel that we'll talk about next week. They've, they've replaced biblical teaching and repackaged the gospel into a product to be sold to consumers. And church, we are not immune to consumerism or spiritual apathy or the slow and subtle presence of erosion. We must wake up to any signs of drifting personally and as a church. The church in Corinth, founded by the Apostle Paul roughly around A.D. 50, was one such church that was on a long drift just three to five years later. They need to wake up and face the reality of their drifting. They need to wake up to the marvelous opportunities for ministry. They needed to, the church then and the church now must awaken and stay alert to anything 
anything that dismantles what Jesus is building. This morning, we turn our attention to the need to wake up to the cost of divisions. When you wake up to the price paid for pettiness in the church today, universally, as well as down to a local level. We need to be awakened to how divisions hurt our testimony. All right, 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, I have organized verses 1 through 17 around five words to give us some handles. Now, this is a pastor's dream right here. Alliteration doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but I kind of like it. Pattern, plea, problem, principle, priority. Did it. All right, for what that's worth, let's look at the pattern, first of all, verses 1 through 9. And, and honestly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But I do want to pull out some observations critical to better understanding where Paul's going in this letter. So notice with me in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 1, that Paul speaks of himself as what? Called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, this church, they knew Paul quite well. He was instrumental in their baby steps in the faith. But by adding here, called to be an apostle... It really strengthened his authority at a time when he was going to speak firmly and candidly about some problems in the church. You see, ignoring the problems isn't the answer, for then you have a whole new set of problems. But dealing with the issues head on, as Paul does here, was all part of God's work in sanctifying this church, and he, and he does the same in us. You see, Paul's about to confront them, as we're going to see in a moment here in verse 10. But before he confronts them, notice he, he takes the time to encourage them. Might there be a lesson for us here in Paul's approach? He models unity and what he says in verses 4 through 9. He says right out of the gates, verse 4, I always thank God for you. Even th that this church might be giving Paul fits, he still is thankful for them. I mean, sometimes it's hard to be thankful for the real church. As Bishop McKinney said, anyone can love the ideal church. The challenge is to love the real church, Right? He goes on and he speaks of the riches they have received by being in Christ in verse 5. He commends them for using their gifts in the church and that they lived in great anticipation of Christ's coming in verse 7. And then verses 8 and 9, Paul encourages them to keep focused on the one who will keep them to the end. Sure, they had problems, but God hadn't given up on them and we shouldn't give up on the church either. God still has a plan. He's, he's recalculating their lives to get them back on the right road. You see, it's never too late to turn things around. But do you see what Paul does here? I don't think it's a stretch at all to see a pattern to follow when it comes to confrontation. Listen, if you can't wait to confront someone, you probably should wait. You probably should wait. I love Paul's approach here. He offers words of affirmation. They're genu it's genuine affirmation. It isn't this, you know, I'm going to say some nice things about you up front so I can give you the real zinger. That's not what he's doing. You know, so, hey, pastor, you know, you, that sermon was really great, but 
I mean, I cringe when I hear that. See, people are more, most likely, more likely to listen to your constructive criticism if they know you really care about them. Paul wants them to know he's on the same team with them. That's why he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, and we could add sisters. He speaks tenderly here as we come to our second word this morning, the plea. Plea, verse 10. Follow along. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. He just spoke in verse 9 of them being in Christ, being called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And he's pointing out here that their union in Christ is a disconnect. Their union in Christ was incompatible with with the divisions within the church. And Paul's so concerned for them, he can't keep silence. He says, I appeal to you. Or some translations, I beseech you. Or I exhort you. Now, we hear the word exhort, and we might think of it as a sharp rebuke that Paul is coming down hard on them. But actually, the word in the original carries the meaning to come alongside of for the purpose of counsel or encouragement. To come alongside of someone. Yeah, yeah, Paul speaks strongly here. He speaks with authority, but he isn't giving them some spiritual beating. He comes alongside of them figuratively speaking, putting his arm around them and saying, I'm concerned for you. I I, want to help. I appeal to you. And he says, what's his plea? That all of you, not some of you, all of you agree with one another. Now, he urges them to agree. Literally, it says they speak the same thing. What does that mean? Well, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. Speak the same thing doesn't mean that I say... I drink my coffee black, so you must say the same thing and do the same thing. You must also drink your coffee black. I mean, there's churches out there that operate that way. This is what I vote for. This is what you should vote for. This is the car I buy. This is the car you should buy. I mean, it exists, and people follow this. I mean, it doesn't mean that if someone says there to be no drums in the church, that we all must say the same thing. No drums in the church. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that someone says, oh, ties and suit coats must be worn uh, to church. Then all of us must say the same thing uh, if there's to be unity. That's not what it's saying. Are we to be a bunch of ducks that quack the same thing? No. No. We're not to be clones of each other. That would be cultish. We mustn't confuse unity with uniformity. One believer was asked about the issue of unity in his church. He said, yeah, unity. Yeah, our church has unity. We're frozen together. <laughs> well, I don't think that's very good to be frozen together. Biblical unity is not about being frozen together. We're just like these robots. We have no heart. You see, the point is, oneness is not sameness. We can hold differences of opinion, disagree on issues. The problem comes in when those differences rob us of peace and harmony. Then there's work to do. But it's not unity. Also, it's not built on spineless theology. Unity doesn't mean that truth doesn't matter. I mean, it's to speak the same 
thing on what we believe, what we hold to as must-haves in our beliefs. That's why we've gone through, gone through in the previous series on True North, what we believe. It's saying the same thing, agree upon those articles of faith. We'd agree upon that this is our final authority, that this is how we're to live our lives. Yes, we must agree on that. But listen, there are huge differences among us in this room. I mean, there's all different body shapes. There's different personality types and backgrounds, experiences and tastes and stages of life and political views and so on. But the beautiful thing is this. The unity of the Spirit takes people who are different and makes them live in soul-satisfying harmony. Let me illustrate. In a band, you have a conductor and several musicians. The musicians share the same music, but they have all different parts. There's melody, there's harmony, there's rhythm, and all kinds of other musical effects going on that I really know nothing about. But I do know this. All things being equal, when all the musicians play their part in sync with the conductor, it's beautiful. In this church, like every church, are many different parts, but we've been given the same sheet music. There's one conductor, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ is given his rightful place of conducting the affairs of the church, there is beautiful harmony. We play the song that Christ has given us to play, then beautiful music will result. And as we play our part... Our eyes must always be on the conductor. If one musician chooses not to look at the conductor and follow his lead and go rogue, do his own thing, play his own song, what's going to happen? Disaster. Chaos. It's unpleasant to the ears. And sadly, the unbelieving world has had to listen to too much of that sound from the church that just can't get along. Paul appeals to unity, to sing from the same sheet of music to keep focused on Christ. Now, hear me on this. I am thankful. I am thankful that I can preach a message like this in a time when, for the most part, we are enjoying unity as a church. But listen, we must guard that. We must guard that. I remember all too well when I was pastoring in uh, Portland at a time when things were going very, very well. Uh, we were growing. There were over 250 people at the time. We added a third person to our pastoral staff. I mean, ministries were, stri- were thriving, and there was a spirit of harmony and unity within the church. But you know what happened? We let down our guard. I didn't realize we had... But slowly, subtly, our unity was greatly threatened, and there were divisions and factions of all kinds. I really honestly think it took some years off my life. Now, I mentioned that not to scare anyone or to cause any paranoia or or wrong belief that when something's going well, that must mean that something bad's about to happen. No, that's stinking thinking. We must do everything, though, in our power to fight for unity and not allow 
anything to come in through you or me to disrupt it. We must remain awakened to the threats to unity. Church, we must stay alert. Now, I also mention that because as we seek to engage people in the life of the church, harmony and unity are attractive. You've heard me speak about the 4E model for ministry, engaging, establishing, equipping, and evangelizing. Well, the first E there is engaging. And one aspect of engaging is as people walk through the doors of our church on any given Sunday, they sense harmony and unity in this place. People are more likely to stick and be a part of things if they sense this is a safe place of, a, of a belonging. Now, the opposite is also true. Back to that incident and situation in Portland. I remember one particular Sunday when all that conflict was going on, when, when, when one, one first-time visitor, when what he said to me after the service. The service was over. He met me in the back, and this first-time visitor came up to me, and he leaned in and whispered something to the effect of, there's something going on in this church right now. I can feel it. And he wasn't saying positively. I went, wow. I didn't mention anything about the conflict from the pulpit. Our singing, our worship that morning seemed to go fine. The sermon I felt I delivered was, had no hint of tension or struggle. But listen, factions, disunity, and strife can be picked up on more than we realize from someone on the outside. If we're to be a welcoming, safe place that engages newcomers, then unity is worth fighting for. All right, what was the problem? What was the problem? Look at me at verse 11. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Incidentally, what Chloe and her household did in informing Paul was not gossip. They were concerned members. But I want you to notice here, Paul mentions the source. Now, I find that interesting that actually... I believe this is one way to stop gossip right in its tracks. If someone says to you, I heard that so-and-so, you stop them right there by asking, Wait, before you tell me anything else, can I mention to them that you're telling me this? <laughs> it might end right there. Likely it will. It won't go any further. Paul says, no, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. I can tell you the source. It's not, hey, pastor, I got something to tell you. But don't let them know I'm telling you. Not that it's ever happened, but hypothetically speaking, of course. Paul says, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. What are they quarreling about? What was the cause for the fighting? It wasn't crab legs. But it was just, just as petty. I think it's something we can relate to. Look at verse 13. He says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. What's the problem in the church? They had formed these, these little cliques, these little schisms, these factions, and four parties were formed in this church. There was the Paul party. I call that the good old days. The good old days. Paul was, was very instrumental in a vast number of people in that church. And, and yes, it's good to appreciate those who have an influence on your life. Just be careful not to put that person up on a pedestal or compare everyone after that to him. And in my 36 years of pastoral ministry, I have heard this many times. 
when Pastor so-and-so was here. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love that. Or back in the day, <laughs> we used to. Okay, it's okay to reminisce. It's okay to remember those good things. But if someone said about the good old days, the good old days are a combination of bad memory and a good imagination. Think about it. Apollos, there was Apollos fan club, the second group, Apollos fan club. Before we know of Apollos, uh, he came from Alexander. He was well-educated, went to an Ivy League school. He was eloquent. He was bright. He was dynamic, perhaps. And, and, and I, I can just kind of hear people say, oh, we really like his style of preaching. I follow Apollos. All right. Then there was the Cephas clan, or the Peter party. Peter was very influential in the Jewish community. This group might have been more characterized by rule following and outward activities and might be what we would call today the fundamentalists. Shape up, ship out, this is how you to live. Here are the rules. Now, I need to point out uh, about the, something about these parties that were formed. They were not the fault of the leaders mentioned. Paul, Paulus, and Peter They weren't the cause of these factions, as far as we know, this division. But people were focused on personalities rather than on the person of Christ. Now, there's a fourth group. I follow Christ is the fourth group. It seemed like that's the right answer. First pass, you'd think that to say I follow Christ would be a good thing. I mean, what's wrong with that? I call this the Christ Club. The Christ Club. Perhaps this group prided itself on not being in any party. Oh, we have no need for leaders. We just follow Christ. We take our direction from Christ alone. I kind of refer to this group as the God told me group. God told me. Why do you argue with that? Let me tell you, these individuals in this fourth party, they can destroy a church. They have an air of superiority. They're self-righteous. They look down on others who aren't as spiritual as they are. Often these are the ones who go off to form their own churches or not, not, not go church at all because the average local church is never good enough for them. They find something wrong with everything. But I want us to see the problem here. This church was fractured because they've taken their eyes off of Christ. Whether they're looking at themselves in their own little club or these personalities, the church in Corinth was focusing on people and not on Jesus Christ. We do the same thing. I follow Calvin. I'm a five-point Calvinist. I'm reformed. Oh, you're not? We're going to have a problem. I follow John MacArthur. I follow Charles Stanley. I follow Kay Arthur or John Piper or Beth Moore or Francis Chan. Or Tucker Carlson. (laughs) I I threw that in for a service and I wasn't so sure about it. It didn't stop me. I did it again. (laughs) Listen, in all those cases, maybe except the last one, this is not to belittle any of those teachers. Often the problem isn't the leader's fault. But we have tendencies toward following a personality. And if we aren't careful, we can form these little groups these little subcultures within the church, and it can divide us. Division of this kind can never underline 
be traced to Christ, for he is not divided. That's the principle we come to next. In verse 13, Paul's going to give the corrective to the divisions in the church. He does so by asking three rhetorical questions, all demanding a no answer. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Can he be broken up in pieces and factions? It's a ridiculous question. The obvious answer is no. Division cannot be traced to Christ. Paul goes on by using himself in the illustration with the second question. Was Paul crucified for you? Ludicrous. Answer is no. Third question. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? <laughs> Did they say at their baptism, I confess Paul is Lord? The principle is this. Our divisions reflect on Christ. They hurt our testimony. The church is one. And if we are one in Christ, then we are one with each other. Jesus unites us. He's the unifying principle. He is the great integrator. You see, Jesus, Jesus makes church, church. Our allegiance is to be to him first and foremost. Everything is to revolve around Jesus. Everything is to be about Jesus. Christ is the center of everything. In our statement, it speaks of Christ as being the head of the church. Yes, this isn't your church. This isn't Pastor Brian's church. This is Jesus' church. Now, I understand we can say that this is my church. I get that. Okay, I'm not, I'm not taking shots at that. But sometimes there's great possession. This is my church. Don't you dare touch it. No. Jesus' church. Always. Always. Now, this does not denigrate people or diminish people's role in our lives. Christ is not divided. And a church awakened knows the damage that disunity does to our testimony and to the name of Christ. Listen. If the church is Christ's body, and it is, Purchased with his blood, it demands we do all we can to preserve, protect, and safeguard it from anything or anyone who would try to hammer away at the priceless unity of the local church. Let that sink in. Christ not divided, and the church divided reflects poorly on Christ. Let me get to the priority here, verse 17. And I'm going to come back to this verse, just the first part I want to look at. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What Paul's saying, here's my priority. My priority is to preach the gospel. That was God's call in his life. Baptizing others followed this priority. Now listen, that's, that's our priority as well. Preach Christ. Center on Christ. Share Christ with others. That is our priority. The gospel is our priority. Church, let's organize around that priority. I'm reminded of a Peanuts cartoon. You say, of course you are. But Lucy in this, in this cartoon, she demands that Linus change the TV channel to watch what she wanted to watch. And Linus says to her, what makes you think that you can walk right in here and take over? These five fingers, Lucy says. She curls them up to a fist and pushes it in his face. Individually, these five fingers are nothing, but when I curl them together like this in a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. <laughs> okay, what channel do you want? Linus asks. <laughs> Turning away, he looks at his five fingers and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it. You see, we can use these hands to make a fist, to threaten others to do as we do, and act as we are, and follow my agenda. We can. But can you imagine what we could do and what we could accomplish as we use our hands to work together for the sake of the gospel? As we fight for unity? We are one in Christ who cannot be divided. Ephesians 4 says plainly there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. I think he's pointing out one. Gospel unites us. We must focus fully on Christ. And whenever we take our eyes off Christ, it will be chaos, conflict, and divisions. Let me ask you a question. Where's your focus been as of late? Where's your focus? Where's my focus? On our circumstances? On myself? Of all the crazy things that are going on in the world? My focus on imperfect people? Or unmet expectations in the church? What distractions have been turning your eyes away from Jesus? What petty issues and peripheral stuff have been taking you away from the priority to join with Jesus and building His church? Let's unite around what Jesus wants to build here. Let's unite around the mission of making disciples. Because make no mistake about it, our unity inside the church is related to our mission outside the church. As Joe Aldridge, writer and speaker, put it, the music of the gospel must precede the words of the gospel and prepare the context in which there will be a hunger for those words. That music is unity. A young man wearing a baseball cap, T-shirt, and faded jeans entered L'Enfant Plaza in Washington, D.C. And he positioned himself against the wall beside a trash basket, and, and he quietly removed his violin from its case. And placing the open case at, its, at his feet, he, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars in pocket change as seed money to bait the passerby. He then lifted his violin to his chin, and he began to play. The player, Joshua Bell, one of the finest violinists of our generation. And for the next 45 minutes, Joshua Bell and the D.C. Metro on January 12, 2007, played Mozart and Schubert as over a thousand people streamed by, mostly hardly taking notice. Only seven people stopped to listen. That's right, seven people. They paid attention. They might have recognized a young man for the world-renowned violinist he is. They also might have noted the violin he played, a rare Stradivarius worth over $3 million. Just three days earlier, Joshua Bell sold out Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100. Bell usually earns around $1,000 a minute. Don't you wish you stayed with the violin? <laughs> but in the subway that day, Bell garnered only $32, that's it, $32 from the 27 people who stopped long enough to give a donation. The difference? Context. Context. No matter how beautifully Joshua Bell played his Stradivarius, his giftedness wasn't enough. It took a context favorable to it. Church, 
We can have the best programs. We can have solid sermons. We can have top-notch sound system. We can have quality music. We can have renovated buildings and the latest and best in technology and branding. But what environment causes a community to take notice? It's people. It's people. It's you. It's me. Our unity is in music that precedes the words of the gospel. An awakened church is what makes us contagious. A unified church with spirit-directed enthusiasm is what reaches out into our community. You see, a church awakened lives and acts as if we have far more in common than what divides us. A church awakened will not tolerate anything, anything that can dismantle what Jesus is building. A church awakened will not accept factions. Unity is worth fighting for. Let's pray. God, help us to see the application to our own lives. Help us to be awakened to what it is you want us to grab a hold of and embrace and change or to continue doing that's consistent with your will. And that the things that need to sink in around this sermon would sink in because they're coming from you and your spirit. Oh God, I pray for that. And thank you that we can now remember our oneness as we come around this table this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.